Hey, this is Laura. Um, we have a special episode today. This is a recording from the Urban Land Institute's Housing the Bay Conference. And this was a lightning round that I was part of. So each speaker goes for only three minutes, and then we had some question and answer. So first you're going to hear from Catherine Bracy of Tech Equity. Then you're going to hear from Rebecca Foster of the Housing Accelerator Fund. She gets into some super wonky stuff about funding affordable housing. Then I'm going to talk about Yimby. And then Kim My Cutler is going to talk about Prop 13. And last, we have Laura Fingal Surma talking about progress Snowy Valley and growing our neighborhood clubs. So enjoy. Let me hold myself to the same standards we're holding them to and launch right into this. I would like you to welcome our first revolutionary to the stage. She is Catherine Bracey, the co-founder and executive director of the Tech Equity Collective. She will be speaking about tech becoming a force for equitable growth. Catherine. Um, I started the Tech Equity Collaborative a couple of years ago when Uber announced that they were buying the Sears department store in downtown Oakland and moving 2,500 jobs there, and the community responded by organizing against it. Now, I live across the street from this building, and it got me thinking about uh, what, this, what, about the, what this told us about the future sustainability of our economy, that the most valuable privately held company in the world could announce they're moving thousands of high-paying jobs to an economically depressed neighborhood, and the community would say, no, don't come. But more importantly, I started thinking about what would have to change in order for a large tech company to make a similar announcement and for people to celebrate that. And that's the basis for Tech Equity Collaborative. Um, it, and, and to answer that question, obviously, housing is at the center of our work. Um, many people view tech as the cause of the housing crisis. Now, we know that uh, the housing crisis has its roots in policies and decisions that were made decades ago, long predating the internet, let alone the rise of the current tech industry. Uh, but this perception persists because tech is, by and large, not at the table um, talking about how we fix this problem. And people see tech workers getting on their buses with their earbuds in, going down to their exclusive campuses, um, and they have the impression that tech workers just don't care about this problem. Uh, but that couldn't be further from the truth. We are doing a lot of research on what motivates tech workers to be civically engaged. And we found that uh, the emotions that they feel by and large when they think about tech's role in the community are frustration, shame, and guilt. Uh, but at the same time, they believe very strongly that tech, should, tech workers should be engaged in their community. And that's where we come in. Uh, we are the channel to bring tech workers into uh, activating them around policy issues that we think will make it so that as the tech economy grows, more people benefit from that growth. Because we think the tech industry can and should drive broad-based opportunity and not displacement and inequality. Of course, for us to achieve this mission, we must be focused on the housing crisis. And so we have articulated a housing policy agenda that balances the 
uh, long-term need to build more housing with the urgent need to protect vulnerable communities from displacement in the short term. And we are actively running campaigns right now, um, including a campaign you're going to hear more about from Kim Mike Cutler uh, to reform Prop 13. If you are a registered voter in California, I have petitions here that you can sign to get this initiative on the ballot in November. Um, so we believe California can be a beacon for inclusivity in the 21st century, that we can welcome newcomers and grow our economy and make sure that longtime California residents also have access to that growth. Tech needs to be at the table to realize that vision. Thank you. Hold on, hold on. Catherine, from your perspective, which tech companies are doing it right and, which, and what factors do they have in common? Well, we don't actually focus on the companies. It's sort of a punt. Uh, we focus on the people who work at those companies. And I think there's a real um, a negative perception of what tech is these days. Uh, but not everybody who works in tech is Mark Zuckerberg or Travis Kalanick. The rank and file people who work at tech companies um, do want to be part of an industry that's driving progressive change. Um, and they don't have a voice. So we are the voice for them, uh, regardless of what company they work at. Um, and honestly, we think a lot of the big companies are, uh, some could be doing more. Many are doing some things and not getting enough credit. Um, we want to make sure that the people who work in those companies feel good about the industry that they work in. Uh, quick follow-up on that. Which companies, if you've got <laughs> any in mind, are doing a good job of allowing their employees opportunities for engagement with tech equity and well, your we, goals? We do have a few corporate partners, including Twilio, Pandora, um, and smaller companies like Snagajob and Pantheon that are um, actively supporting our work um, and giving their employees time to plug into the stuff that we are doing um, and going beyond the typical just sort of you know charity work that is really team building exercises but um, getting them engaged in uh, in real systemic change and are there best practices company leaders in the audience today might think of based on what comes out of your mouth next uh, yeah, you can join our corporate partnership program. Uh, that's a really easy way to, uh, to take your CSR beyond just uh, charity work. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. I was not sent here to be Captain Softball, so I will try to fix that next time. Next speaker, we welcome our next revolutionary, Rebecca Foster, who is the executive director of the San Francisco Housing Accelerator Fund, who is going to speak to us about the virtues of <laughs> nimbly deploying capital. Thank you. So we've heard about this a lot today. Uh, a few points I would just say are, it costs 500 to $700,000 a unit, takes five to seven years, and generally for affordable housing developers, they need to braid together about seven different funding sources in order to get a unit of housing delivered to somebody in San Francisco. And at the same time, we have 73% of our residents who can't afford their rent, they're severely rent burdened, and rampant displacement, particularly in our communities of color, uh, and, and dwindling federal and state resources to address the problem. So the, the Housing Accelerator Fund is focused on mobilizing different sources of capital, philanthropic capital, bank, CRA-motivated capital, and corporate capital, bringing together those different sources into one flexible balance sheet that can really be focused on addressing what some of those delivery bottlenecks are for preserving and producing affordable housing faster and more cost-effectively. Uh, we 
for example, can lend up to 150% LTV for projects and can close in 60 days, so really are designed at meeting a need that the public sector can't meet and that some of our, the, the private sector lenders can't meet either. We launched 10 months ago. We've closed six loans since then. One uh, new site pre-development acquisition in the Excelsior with Bridge and five building preservation, small site preservations with Meta across the mission, Noe and Bernal. That's been $33 million of capital deployed uh, over those six loans, 175 units of new housing under construction or, or in pre-dev, two new units of accessory dwelling units, which is another place that we've taken more risk than others have been able to take. They're not done yet. They're taking longer than we hoped, but probably should have expected. But that's another way just that we're trying to push on innovation even incrementally. What does this mean in terms of people? So 68 residents in the five buildings that we've preserved enabled to stay in their homes. 19 of those were at, were at risk of immediate risk of eviction. Across our occupied portfolio, the average median income is $34,000 versus $78,000 in the city as a whole. That's 76% AMI versus what it would you would need to earn, 213% of AMI, in order to be able to otherwise have access to that, a similar two-bedroom unit for, these, for the families. So we have $44 million now. We're working on our two biggest preservation uh, sites in the next six months, a 70-unit building in Chinatown and a 50-unit building in Soma. And we have $20 million more committed to get us through those two loans. Uh, we have the need for significant additional MES capital, PRI capital, in particular impact capital to scale, and also for that permanent capital that I think many of the other revolutionaries are talking about, that's the public capital that takes all of the political leverage and all of the creative thought that we're all here working on as well. All right, Rebecca, a couple quick questions. One, besides the access to capital itself, are there other impediments to you being able to scale this program? Yeah, I mean, I think to the, definitely we are, the first product that we've developed is a bridge financing product. And part of that is because the type of capital we can access is not 30-year 3% capital. And, and so we're trying to make that product as effective as it can be to, to meet the needs in that bridge nature. But you need permanent subsidy in order to make affordable housing work long term. And that subsidy can come in the form of revenue sources like bonds. It also can come in the, in the form of reducing the cost of land. That Reducing the cost of land, the biggest lever for that is increasing density. And so lots of legislation has actually started to do that. Um, and I think the, you know, another source that was raised today, th property taxes are a huge one. So all, many levers. but. We can address with our fund that need for the long-term the long subsidy that makes up the delta between what somebody can afford to pay in rent and right. what it costs to actually build the housing in a place like the Bay Area. Thank you for banging your head against this particular wall. Rebecca Foster, ladies and gentlemen. That's fine, come on up. Uh, I think it's important to note, especially given some of the, 
the circumstances our nation finds itself in at this moment, five of the six people who've been asked to speak today happen to be female, and I commend ULI for choosing to put the panel together in this particular way. Your next speaker is going to be Laura Foote Clark, who is the executive director of Yimby Action, who will be talking about growing the pro housing movement. Laura. Hi, um, my name is Laura Clark. Um, I have no experience and have never had a job that had a prerequisite. Um, so let that be an inspiration to everybody who wants to get into politics. Um, <laughs> this is a cross shoot of like other people who have no idea what they're talking about, but have decided to get involved. Um, what do we believe? Uh, we believe in more housing for all. We believe in cities of opportunity. We believe it of an, an abundant housing at every income level. We believe in growing green integrated cities where people can thrive. That is not what we have. Um, we believe that the problem is political, um, that we've legislated this housing problem into existence through a lot of bad laws. Um, it is not that millennials eat too much avocado toast. It is, in fact, that we have structural problems that keep us from building the housing we need. Um, click. Um, we have really bad laws, um, and we've talked a lot here about these really bad laws, and it's my job to make these kind of simple and pithy and, and bold. Um, we have restrictive zoning that just on paper keeps us from being able to build apartments in places. We have slow permitting process that means that the housing that does get built takes 10 years to get your frickin' permits. Um, and then on top of that, we also have uh, laws that disincentivize, uh, that, that incentivize car-centric infrastructure. We have all kinds of other things. Um, so we advocate for uh, loosening zoning, speeding up the permitting process, getting more funding for subsidized affordable housing, uh, also Prop 13, roll bad. Um, there's a lot of other things that fit into this idea of how do we build the cities we need. Um, on top of that, we have 101 municipalities, each one charting its own little destiny. Um, it is really boring. And so how do we get people out to these hearings? They're terrible. Where the decisions are made are horrible. Um, so we have a chicken and egg problem. The constituency is there. People believe in this stuff. So we have to get people political. Um, we have to change the laws. Politicians change laws. Politicians are narcissists. They get to the heads of parades. We need a parade. Um, and so I organize a parade. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's about getting people excited. It's about getting people out canvassing and being like, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to endorse someone for city supervisor. That's really exciting. That's how we're going to change this thing. Um, we talk in values, um, opportunity for all. Uh, Obama had a white paper, and you would have thought it was like the best thing, because it was, it was the best thing ever. Um, we talk about families and community, where are your kids going to live? Uh, we talk about weirdness. How do we keep cities vibrant and interesting and artists? Um, how We have YIMBY members, so we're now, for the Bay Area, um, over 1,200, I'm being cut off. Um, but like, it's all about growing this parade. Um, this is the one, if you want to take a snapshot of what the different kinds of organizations that we have are, we have this network across the state of California and across the world now growing of local clubs doing things on the ground. We have our statewide that's helping us pass legislation. And then we have Sue the Suburbs, which is the most fun. <laughs> The suburbs are sitting on their hands. Okay, Laura, uh, we're all for the flat tax till we find out what it actually does. How do you address the 
yeah, we, none of us like bad laws, but the nuances are important. Right. How do you avoid having the good intentions and the protections built into our existing planning and zoning laws uh, from being swept away with the simplicity that you desire? Uh, it's complicated, but what, what we currently, you have to first acknowledge that the status quo is kind of the worst of all worlds. Um, that the idea that we had that we were going to be doing, um, focusing on like, you know, Prop 13 and some of the ways that we've focused on protecting what we have, oh, sorry, okay. um, ha have not solved our problems. Um, and so we have this like big underlying structural problem that even though uh, we feel like we've done a lot in housing, we've actually been not even staying in one place. We've been falling backwards, um, that the problem's been getting worse and worse and worse. And so it's my job to draw that line between that energy that's pure, that's like, we need housing, I don't care how, right? And <laughs> and say, okay, what are the like specific policies that we do? How do we make sure that we maintain really good tenants protections while we do it so we're not doing development with displacement, that in fact we're building on the parking lot, that we're building on the underused lot, that we are allowing housing to be built in the wealthiest single family home only exclusionary neighborhood. And so I definitely focus on where, you know, it's my job to channel that simplistic message, not lose the heat and energy of that simplistic message while still saying we need right to civil counsel. Um, we need tenants protections in order to make sure that people are able to stay in their home while we build on the parking lot next door. If you want a revolution with a parade, Laura Foot Clark is your chief. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Our next revolutionary, Kim Mai Cutler, who is the operating partner of Initialized Capital, and Kim will be talking about politics. Kim Mai will be talking about politics, taxation, and land valuation. Okay. So I've been uh, t uh, tasked with explaining in three minutes the most consequential law in modern California history for the built environment and our entire financial structure. Um, to start, I mean, if you're at a Yuli conference I, and you're in San Francisco and you're in California, I hope you know what Prop 13 is. Um, but just to explain it. Uh, your property tax rate used to be tied to the market value of your property. Um, after Proposition 13 was passed in 1978, it's tied to the purchase price. So if you bought your home in like 1982, it can the, the, the tax on that can rise no more than 2% a year. Um, and then your neighbor might buy it at a 2017 price and have like much more property tax than you. Um, and then it also required uh, two-thirds of voters to approve any special taxes levied by local governments that restricted um, municipal flexibility on taxation and revenue generation. Um, so the historical context there is, you know, Prop 13 came at the end of the post-war American economic uh, miracle. A lot of the flatlands in California, um, in the coastal California were built out and the only way to go after that was to replace single family homes with apartment buildings. What people did instead was they just downzoned and then they cut their taxes. Um, the consequences are pretty profound. I, I lived, you know, I'm, I, I wasn't around then when it happened. I'm sure there are people in this room who were around there when it happened, so you can educate me afterwards about what that, you know, period in time was like. But it allows land as a factor of production to absorb disproportionate value of, like, all of the economic and creative value that we create. There are huge inequities between newer and long-standing households. Um, people can also inherit their property tax rates, um, their parents' property tax rates, so that creates inequities over time, incentivizes land 
land banking, and um, it changes the whole financial structure of the state. So the, the, the wealth of the technology industry is generally captured at the state level, where personal income taxes are about 70% of the general fund, but municipalities are very restricted, and so that leads to the situation where there's kind of a race to the bottom on business taxes, um, and a lot of the wealth is not kind of being channeled into product, you know, productive investments in public infrastructure and services, and it also fiscalizes land use, making cities favor retail and office development over housing. Um, and then, you know, it undermined the ability of California to finance its promises of, you know, uh, lower cost, higher education, affordable housing, um, K through 12 education in general. Um, I'm not a officially representative of Evolve. I, I should just caveat that. Um, but there are two initiatives potentially being on the ballot this fall. Um, one would be split role. And so commercial properties would be assessed at a modern rate, but uh, residential would be untouched. It could raise $11 billion for uh, K through 12 education and other needs. And then there's also a computing realtors initiative that would allow homeowners over the age of 55 to transfer their assessments to uh, newer homes, but that could result in a net uh, hit to um, state and education funding of starting at $150 million a year to north of a billion dollars a year um, in foregone tax revenue. So I tried to do it. I tried to do it really fast. So, okay. Okay. Uh, I've just been asked by the University of uh, San Francisco to announce that you've all just got three graduate class credits. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, so I'd like you to predict the unpredictable. Given the entrenched interests in Sacramento and the various desires to change uh, Prop 13, just wondering who Disney's lobbyist is at this very moment in time because <laughs> they'll get hit hard. Yeah. Uh, Predict the unpredictable. What might happen? Who will lead it? And how will it turn out uh, in the state of California regarding Prop 13 in the next I mean, year or two? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you you can't know until you test you test it. I mean, like part of what evolves. They they've spent five years build, building this coalition and this movement and creating this conversation and discourse around what Proposition 13 is. And then this is their first run at trying a ballot initiative. And I assume this is a conversation that's going to take a long time. But I would say generally, everyone knows that we're in a crisis situation. Um, our, our, the, the way that we finance public services in the state is very, very inflexible. Um, and especially between the way that wealth is allocated between cities and the state and the way that we can use all of this pr productivity, all of this um, creativity that's happening here and, make you know, and making sure that we have qu high quality schools and transit infrastructure. And we can't do that with the, the current level of restrictions that we have. Fair point. Uh, given that you are uh, trained as a journalist and now working in the venture capital world, are there any predictions uh, that you might be making some, your venture capital firm maybe making some specific investments anticipating where all of this might wind up? Or any um, tips you want to give the crowd? I don't think that we make investments based on whether Prop 13 is going to get reformed or not. <laughs> we could be waiting a long time. <laughs> Fair enough. Kim cool. Mai Cutler, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. And, sorry, I bounced one ahead. Uh, we have Laura Fingal-Surma, who is the co-founder and a community organizer at one of San Francisco's newer organizations, Progress Noe Valley. She will talk about creating new power centers. Welcome to my neighborhood, Noe Valley. For those who aren't familiar, it's a highly desirable part of San Francisco with a bit of reputation for nimbyism. Here's another view. In early 2015, a self-appointed neighborhood leader started organizing under the banner of Protect Noe's Charm. All of a sudden, she was everywhere, on Nextdoor, in the neighborhood newspaper, and even at City Hall. 
In case the name of the organization wasn't transparent enough for you, here are a few choice quotes from the group's early days. Those of us who moved to San Francisco and put a lifetime of saving down to buy a modest house in Noe Valley assume that the scale of our surrounding structures will remain more or less the same. The neighborhood is united in opposition to change, she said. Should the response on next door clearly contradicted her, but that difference of opinion wasn't being made visible to decision makers. Something clearly had to be done. On a related next door thread, another couple we had never met sent my partner a private message uh, of thanks, saying, there should be a group for neighbors like us. We'll call it Progress Noe Valley. Fast forward three years, and we're advocating for housing on behalf of 500 neighbors, dozens of whom have become volunteers we regularly mobilize in person. The problem is that Protect Noe's Charm, which deceptively rebranded as Noe Neighborhood Council, isn't unique. There are similar NIMBY groups everywhere. Here's a glimpse of what we're up against in San Francisco. There are, there are the, these are the groups linked uh, on the website for the Coalition for San Francisco Neighborhoods, but there are many others. Right now, we're staring at a significant strategy for breaking through the housing deadlock. It's time to take a page from the NIMBY playbook. We need a grassroots YIMBY, YIMBY group in every neighborhood, especially the wealthier, whiter, more exclusionary ones like Noe Valley. YIMBY Action is building exactly that. We've been recruiting leads, crowdsourcing best practices, and growing a network of independent neighborhood groups across San Francisco. First, there was Grow the Richmond in late 2016. Then there was the new Soma Neighborhood Coalition. More recently, we started monthly strategy meetings for leads and are up to 11 neighborhood groups and with organizing almost 1,500 members. Together, they are so active that I can't even keep up with all their efforts anymore. Some of the other fun and creative names are Haight-Ashbury Neighbors for Density, a play on the name of the local NIMBY group, and Westside Bestside. What exactly do neighborhood YIMBY groups do? Most importantly, they challenge the NIMBY narrative and shine a harsh light on exclusionary zoning from the inside. More specifically, they do all of this and more. As we saw in Noe Valley, literally anyone can start a neighborhood group. There is no barrier to entry. You just come up with a name and start talking, and maybe people will listen. With guidance from other leads, getting started is easier than ever. For example, the District 10 urbanists are already outdoing Progress Noe Valley uh, by hosting a supervisorial debate in their very first quarter of existence. So, do you know a potential neighborhood lead? Send me an intro. <laughs> Laura. Taking a slightly cynical view because I've been doing San Francisco politics for 30 years, pardon me that, uh, you're setting up rival power centers to existing ones. While I believe that collaboration and education can happen when you have groups that are pitted against each other, that isn't traditionally the best way of going about that. Is that your goal or are you storming the gates and taking them out? Is it an education bring them in big tent or is it a we're going to win situation? We certainly try to kill them with kindness. Um, you know, I think uh, we attend the local NIMBY meetings because they're community meetings and we're part of the community. Uh, so we do things like linger and help put chairs away with a smile on our face at the end. Uh, we help show our humanity, it makes people hate you less. 
Um, but, uh, but you know, this was certainly kind of a terrifying thing to do, and um, it's gotten easier with time as there's more and more of us, uh, both in other neighborhoods and right in Noe Valley. Um, but you know, I mean, I don't think we were really expecting to bring a lot of people to our side, or some, maybe some of the people in the middle. But the, you know, the guy who writes like you know a quarter of all the complaints about the commuter shuttles like isn't going to come to our side about housing, you know, they're interrelated issues. He's housing busy. Transit. Yeah, you know, and so there's certain people that just aren't aren't going to see things our way. Um, you know, uh, the funny thing is, of course, so we're just yeah, kind of storming the gates. Um, it. You know, it, it makes you a little bit of a reputation, uh, but I've I try to just you know keep my calm. I've I've run into these people in the neighborhood. Uh, I've seen them on the bus. I've sat down next to them and had conversations, uh, and we just you know we do our best. But the the goal is to really find the people who already agree with us and mobilize them. Excellent. If you have questions, please raise your hand and wave it above your head. One of our wonderful volunteers will be by to collect them in a moment. We've got a few. We have one for each of the speakers so far. Well, we're probably going to wind up with a couple more. And I'd ask our, the rest of our speakers to come back up and join us on the stage. Folks, you're going to be sharing this microphone. I'm going to be hiding over on this side. First of all, I'm going to fall over that chair and die. And second of all, you're not here to hear from me. And if you are, please request a refund. That was a terrible decision on your part. But uh, what I just heard personally was that the rules aren't necessarily rules, that creativity and leadership and challenging the status quo and jousting with sacred cows is a worthwhile effort. I really appreciate the fact that all of you rolled through your presentations with such verve and brevity. And let's turn this into a little bit more of a conversation after we give our esteemed panel a round of applause. All right, first question for Kim Mai. Grab the mic. What is the simple direct message to reform Prop 13 that is better than Howard Jarvis's message in 1978? OK, well. No problem. A political consultant would be paid many tens of thousands of dollars to come up with this. So do it right, and this could be golden for you. Wait, so for what, for what, like for the beginning, like Evolve's message is around more money for education. So I mean, that's like an initial message for the first part of it. Um, so I was, I mean, I originally when I was asked to do this, I was kind of asked to like, I felt like I was asked to explain the history of Prop 13. I'm not sure what the message would be long term. I know how I conceive of it, which is, you know, the, the land in the state, is, it's like a sponge. It kind of soaks up all of the creative ability of the people without it being kind of redistributed back into the, the, the types of like, you know, mass transit systems that we need, the types of universities that we need, the types of schools that we need. And it's, and it's frustrating and for a younger generation, they definitely see it. Like they see that, you know, they know, I know from my parents' history, I know from my family's history, like my, you know, my, my mother's generation, they were able to come here as war refugees in their 20s and buy a place down in this, you know, and, and that's just not possible anymore because, you know, like people have, you know, the previous generation got to enjoy huge like 10x returns on their homes and then nothing was invested in the schools. All the schools are having to cut their budgets now because they don't have adequate resources and they have huge structural liabilities. And so we just need more ability and flexibility for the state to, to deal with the, the modern economy that has now. Excellent, thank you very yeah. much. Catherine. How do we get tech workers to vote? 
they do vote, actually. They, um, many of them are, uh, we had an event the other day on Prop 13 reform and I asked people to raise their hands for uh, who's registered in California. Every single one of them raised their hands. Um, so I think that's kind of a misnomer. I think it is true that sometimes they're more interested in national politics than local politics, but we're starting to see that change, especially with the rise of VMB. And, um, and so I think they do vote. I think that they will be uh, known more as a powerful political constituency going forward, and we're trying to create the political identity for that group of people. Are there any tactics or is there anything you've done that you found to have particular traction in the tech community to get people? Yeah, I mean, we know involved? that um, these folks are uh, not interested in doing politics as usual. And so um, though they are taking petitions to their workplaces and getting their coworkers to sign on to this uh, ballot initiative, uh, they also are building software that's going to help make it easier for people to see who represents them down to the very local level. Um, they are coming to events and learning more about the technicalities of certain policies. So I think they really want their sort of higher level of skills to be engaged in this work and not just um, be seen as sort of, you know, a cog in a, in a larger machine who can just make phone calls or, or write emails. Thank you. Thanks. Rebecca, how do you scale your model? <laughs> Simplest question, yeah? Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think I touched on a little bit. I mean, I think like the some of the key pieces are well, I'd say there's like three key pieces. One of them is that our products have to actually meet what the need is in the marketplace. And so our main product right now is bridge financing for acquisition and, and you know, fast, uh, more with a greater risk appetite acquisition and rehab. Um, we are partnering with an institution to launch a new sub fund, a $50 million fund focused on faster and more cost effective delivery, specifically of supportive housing for chronically homeless individuals in San Francisco. And I think that like, that's another example of how we scale is working together on really creative solutions that meet a need and then you know meet a challenge um, and then more capital obviously <laughs> on the question of more capital here's a follow-up from another visitor today do you think that there could be a role for inclusionary fees to help provide additional seed capital to grow your platform um, so I mean as folks know well who in the city government the, the structure of inclusionary fees now is that those dollars go to the government and are are used as part of that permanent capital source for MoCD or likely for other governments to provide the permanent long-term subsidy for affordable housing. I think there is, we've explored with some developers and haven't done this yet, but potential opportunities through negotiated development agreements or in other ways with settlement agreements to be a, independent nonprofit entity that can move a little faster than the government but is still closely coordinated with the city from a policy perspective um, to take funds for related to market rate development or related to development projects and then deploy those quickly for preservation in those same neighborhoods for example thank you Ms. Clark how do you take on environmentalist opposition to urban density 
So there's, there's an interesting fracture happening in the environmentalist movement where you have uh, the old school first round of environmentalism was about stopping big things. Um, and it was a, a no was the like first round of a lot of environmental activism. Um, and, and, and for a lot of the problems they had, it made a lot of sense. How do we stop that highway? Um, how do we stop people blasting through neighborhoods? How do we stop uh, things that are toxic pollutants? Um, and I think luckily we're seeing within the environmentalist movement a real move towards saying actually we need uh, people to be living dense, vibrant lifestyles in more urban places and not doing suburban sprawl. And that jibes really well with Yimbyism. Um, we do not think that people should be living in single family, low density, car centric places. We think that those places need to densify. Um, and that jibes really well with a modern environmentalist vi vision um, that says how do we get people out of their cars? How do we move away from um, uh, carbon emitting lifestyles. Um, and so I, I think that while we still have like, like the Sierra Club is like really not, like it's like in the schizophrenic moment right now where you have uh, like local uh, people who have been in the Sierra Club as a member for you know 40 years and they still uh, have kind of that old school like stop uh, mentality and they think of the environment as their local environment, right? They'll be like, I wanna save that tree. And um, that tree is really cute, um, but I am less interested in a tree than I am in the overall globe, and so how do we shift that kind of thinking? Thank you. And Laura the second, curious question, what's it like to go head to head with your neighbors? <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they are used to seeing me now, though, so it's just, it's one of those things you just keep doing it, uh, and it gets better. Um, they, you know, things are changing in Noe Valley. You know, I mean, people know that we're there, um, and that's really exciting. Uh, you know, I mean, I think the local newspaper still doesn't, like, regularly call me for comment because they just don't really want this to be happening. Um, <laughs> but as I said, I run into, you know, my neighbors on the bus. Um, you know, I help them put away chairs after their meetings, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, I think it's turning out all right, so. <laughs> Excellent. Final question is a bit of a hand grenade to roll into the room. It is for all of you to address if you like, but there is an assertion that CEQA is no longer what it used to be and its original intent, and it is now a tool to, quote, stop growth and drive up costs. Agree, disagree, what to do about it? The mic is yours, fight. <laughs> yes. Um, I think the biggest problem, and this is a problem with a lot of the laws that were passed uh, during that era, is that they are based on uh, into small groups of people coming and saying no. And, and that, again, it was, a, it was a really important solution for the problems that they were having to empower local people to say no to what were obviously horrible things. But the problem with laws like CEQA is that they're based on where people live, right? Because like the trees don't file CEQA appeals. Um, and so we have this like fundamental structural problem that CEQA is measuring the impact on the local area, um, which if you're building in a city, um, should be measured as positive almost all the time. And instead we're saying it's having an impact on like, it's just, it's just a mess. And if I could empower trees to file CEQA, um, I think that that would be a, a better way to it's enable coming. CEQA to, I know, because we have to move away from complaint-based laws. Let me just ask quickly if any of yeah, the rest of you would like to address this before we... 
I would just say, I mean, using, even though it's hard, things like Senate Bill 35, which we're trying to use on a project, and it is really hard. Um, but I mean, the more that we can take advantage as a development community of really pushing the envelope on like the incremental pieces that eat away at and show there are some types of housing, at least to start, that should be able to move through a process faster, I think that should help. We all have an obligation to deal with what is before us in any given moment, but I hope that you have enjoyed listening to six people look around various corners and exhort you to arms. Thank you very much to our panel.